there is not the happiness. The here and between here and there is the happiness. So don't be in a rush to get there. You know, I catch myself doing that. Like, like I meet, meet people like you guys, like I serendipitously did at the coffee shop. (laughs) Normally I would have been in a hurry to drink my coffee and go. And then all of a sudden you were really inviting and you pulled me in we had a nice little chit chat. And in those moments, I remind myself, I have nowhere to be, but right here. Even if I'm late for something, I have nowhere to be but right here. And we need to remind ourselves of that in everything that we do. And when we do, we're going to slow down and have a more enriched and fulfilling life with stuff that matters. That was creative disruptor Michael Marks. And this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Episode 58 of the YTP, welcome back to the place where every week we connect you with people who are looking, finding, and living their purpose. People like last week's guest, Kathleen Kastner, who after several Hail Mary passes in life, has found her tree and is sharing her greatness with the world. If you didn't check out that show, definitely get it in the queue for a listen this week. Thank you for your support of the show. We are on a mission to create a better world. And although this could sound like a lofty goal to some people, for us, for you guys, for this community, it's simply the only answer to a world that is crying out for change. A Yogi Triathlete, BJ and I are driving our passion of high vibe living into the world by assisting our athletes to be their very best selves. By teaching mindfulness every chance we get, by promoting a healthy lifestyle through plant-based nutrition, and by sharing stories through this podcast, you are all a part of this mission. And from what we are seeing and hearing, you guys are getting in the gap and living more consciously. Enough at being asleep at the wheel. This life is too precious for autopilot. Awake and ready is the name of the game, and that's exactly what you need to be in order to create your best athletic performances, relationships, and your best self in this life. But this does not come without betting big, taking risks, and facing fear. Heck, no, it doesn't. Believe me, I know. But if you're into that kind of thing, then you're going to love today's episode. Michael Marks is the Chief Disruption Officer at Creative Disruption, a virtual agency steeped in the art of progress, colored by variation. Hired by brands and institutions who are in need of a shakeup, Michael is well known as the guy to get the job done. From producing movies to controversial billboards to hiring picketers and complainers, Michael is not afraid to leave a mark that is to the benefit of his clients. A Southern California native, Michael grew up in an environment where curiosity was encouraged, interests were to be nurtured, and epic athletic pursuits were as common as family dinners. Inspired by his uncle Steve, as in Prefontaine, Michael ran his first marathon at the age of 12 in boxer shorts and a pair of Nike sneakers, of course. Michael went on to become a professional triathlete, racing against the likes of Mark Allen, Scott Tinley, and Kenny Souza. Living the life of multi-sport with heavy doses of competition and crazy fun loaded on top, Michael dishes on the insane training sessions of this time, and also some pretty interesting experiences that he conducted after a serendipitous encounter with Timothy Leary, the Harvard professor known for his exploration of the therapeutic applications of psychedelic drugs. Michael has led 
an enriching life, to say the least, one that now allows him to guide others to success, whether that be his students at Cal State, where he is an executive in residence, one of the many companies that seek him out to turn their bottom lines around, or one of the 1,200 athletes that clip in every May to ride the epically challenging Belgian waffle ride. Touted as the most unique cycling event in the country, this year's BWR consisted of, are you ready for this? 140 miles, 13 categorized climbs, 13,000 feet of climbing, 40 miles of dirt riding, and 14 water crossings. Not your typical cycling event, but what I love so much about it is that Michael makes each and every one of his competitors think and think hard about their race day recipe. Every piece of equipment that will be needed for their success must be carefully chosen. With a 40% attrition rate, this race will bring every single competitor to a point of transcendence or complete annihilation. This conversation with Michael covers his beautiful life, which is truly a work of art colored by variation. So sit back, pop the buds in, turn up the volume because you are not going to want to miss a word of the wisdom spoken here by the original creative disruptor, Michael Marks. All right, so we're just coming off the Belgian, well, I'm not coming off the Belgian waffle ride, but there's a bunch of people that are. (laughs) And that happened May... It was May 21. May 21 this year, and it was the seventh year? Sixth. Sixth year, and there's going to be a seventh. Yeah, we're actually doing one in November in Arizona, so... Oh, Oh, nice. That will be the inaugural event in Arizona. That's November 5th. And where's that? It's in Mesa. So it's near Phoenix and Tempe. Nice. It's in Mesa. All right. Well, we know some. We're going to be down We know there. some crazy athletes. Yeah, around I mean, that it's area. Near, near where the uh, triathlon happens. Yeah, so. we just had a friend of ours. She was a podcast guest. She just finished Ultraman Australia. Not only did she finish it, she like broke course records. She Ooh. came in second overall. She's crazy. Nice. She's amazing. I think she, yeah, because now that she's got her Kona's done, her Ultraman's done. Um, it's time yeah. for something new. Yeah, and that's what she wants. She wants to get into ultras. She wants to get into different stuff. Yeah. But she's really, really focused girl. Obviously, she can get that stuff done. Her name's Mary Knott. So yeah, now it's time for her to play. I think, uh, anyway, I know she listens to this podcast, so I guess we're calling you out right now, mm, Mary. Get on that. <laughs> Belgian <laughs> waffle on ride. Down. Let's just dive into it. Let's okay. talk about it. When did it begin? It was your idea, and tell us the, the, the seeds. Oh. The seeds. Well, we have to go way back. But yeah, go way go back. Way, yeah. Go way back. This is just a conversation. We'll see where it goes. All right. My family's Belgian, so I kind of grew up with this uh, cycling thing, even though we were runners to begin with. So I'm the oldest of four kids. My uh, relatives were Belgian bakers. My dad was the oldest of seven kids born to my grandparents, and he worked in the bakery as well, And um, as did every one of his siblings. I grew up with my parents being cyclists and runners, and so I ran my first marathon when I was 12, which really isn't saying much because my brother did it when he was eight. I have, wow. tw- I have twin brothers. They did it when they were eight and nine and ten. And so in your family, it's not saying much. But not saying much at all. <clears throat> for the, re- for the yeah. rest of the world, running a marathon at 12 is insane. No, I look at my kids now who are 15 and 13, and I just laugh at the idea of my son 
running a marathon. Yeah. Do they have any interest at all? In no, no. No. Do you remember that marathon? Oh, yeah. I remember it. I'm, I've you, run 45, and I think I remember all of them pretty well. How did that, how did that first one go? Did you enjoy it? You know, I trained for a month. I wore um, <laughs> boxer shorts that hung down below my canvas soccer shorts. Of course. I had um, spent $28 on a pair of Nike waffle trainers, even though my aunt was the first, essentially, marketing director at Nike. Oh, wow. Um, so later, I used to get free shoes from her all the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. She used to date Steve Prefontaine. So Pre used to come down and spend time with our family when he would come to race, uh, say, the Times Indoor or Sunkissed Indoor track meets or even outdoor meets. He'd stay with us. So my first memory of the track that I ran in, ran on in high school, was being there with my dad timing Steve Prefontaine on that, that dirt track with the stopwatch while I run, ran around in circles on the, the inside. And he was just a family friend. <clears throat> like He was just, you know... He was like Uncle Steve. So he inspired all of us <laughs> to become runners. So it was sort of a natural thing. My dad was a marathoner. My mom was a marathoner. I'm the oldest of four. We're all going to do that, right? So all six of us ran marathons. And so I had this, you know, endurance thing going on from a young age. I also did my first bike race when I was 12. And so I've always sort of carried this um, love of endurance stuff and eventually became a triathlete because I swam too when I was younger. So. so it's just a natural transgression. Yeah. Like yeah. in college I played soccer and I ran and I swam. And then my senior year is like, somebody's like, well, why aren't you a triathlete? And I was like, Oh yeah, good idea. And what <laughs> and time, what timing was it? What, what's the years around? Uh, 86 was my first triathlon. Okay. So Really, the sport was new. Like it was pretty new. But you right? know, like '86, I did um, Santa Barbara Triathlon. It was a half Ironman. There were hundreds and hundreds of people that competed in that event. Open ocean swim it was 1.5 mile swim as opposed to 1.2. 56 mile ride, really hilly, and then a fairly hilly um, half marathon. <clears throat> My bike fell apart, <laughs> and uh, I remember being on the side of the road by Lake Casitas, like just trying to get the chain back on, and like, ah, oh, this is a nightmare. Getting it back on, finishing way behind what I wanted to on, on the the ride, and then proceeded to try and run as many people down as I could. The the next year, I think it was the next year or the year after, I did it, and I ran like a one thirteen, half, which was the at the time, I think maybe still is the, the, the record for the half. I didn't win, though, because I had flatted on the bike. So I was <laughs> leaning like on the year. bike. Okay. I flatted. Maybe this is year three. Okay. Um, flatted, fixed it. It was a tubular. Finished and then almost ran down the winter. I love it. So you've, you had some bike karma early. So I the Belgian waffle ride's making a lot more. Yeah, got it all worked out. Yeah, we all have bad luck with that stuff, right? We all have our stories of. Oh, we all oh have my our God, stories. You wouldn't believe what happened to me. <laughs> totally. I was gonna win too. You know, it just, yeah, it just depends on how long we're gonna like carry those stories around with us and let them. Yeah. You know, well, define who we are. Well, when you look back on them and you laugh, like I went to San Jose to do. Back then, we had the United States Triathlon Series, 
that was what you did. And they were, it was city after city after city and you traveled to compete, you know? So there was San Jose, there was Dana Point down here. There was a whole host of events. And I remember going all the way to San Jose, came out of the water in second, chased down the guy that was leading. Just as I caught him, my back tire goes, and I had no spare. And that was the end of my race, right? So you eventually get your way back. You get driven back to the mm-hmm. finish. You wait for people to come in. And you wait. have so much more in the And then you drive tank. back home, which, you know, like 10-hour drive back home. So did you grow up in Southern California? Yeah, we grew up in Palos Verdes, which is, uh, you know, L.A. area. And that P- the PV Marathon, the Palos Verdes Marathon, was the one that I ran in 77 when I was 12. And then I did it 31 years in a row. So some years I would like n- not train at all, not even a step between them, but I'd go, I got to keep my streak. So I'd go back to my parents' house. I'd spend the night. I'd eat a pasta dinner with my parents, show up, do the race, keep the streak alive. And then sometimes I'd be somewhat fit. So I'd like, I'd try and win. And I remember one time like leading to like about the 22 mile mark, but the wheels started coming off the bus more like around 16 or 17 or 18. I remember I'm running and I'm, I'm fairly, you know, like five thirties or something, a pretty good pace. And my brother, who was a collegiate runner at the time came to meet me and he met me like at the 10 mile mark, I think. And I proceeded to run him off my butt. He was like, dude, you're going too fast. You're going too fast. Like, ah, and dropped him and then eventually dropped myself. And then one by one, four guys caught me. So one after the next and I'm doing that thing where you're looking back mm-hmm. you know uh, running for your swear, life though if my grandma had come by and said come on sonny and slapped me on the butt and said let's go get him I would have said go on ahead grandma I'm good <laughs> I'm good and then I struggled in and finished fifth but yeah at 31 years in a row doing that silly so thing. 31 of the 45 marathons you've run with that one was this one and then there's like Boston and LA a couple times and Long Beach and Catalina Oh, yeah. yeah. We, we talked about yeah. that. Isn't that a, tra- a, that's a trail one, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I think I was just about to run yeah. my first ultra, or I just had run it when we met that day. Yeah. You had you had just finished the one... In Mendocino. In, up north, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, only, the only one I've done. Okay, there you go. So but, far. Yeah, so yeah. far. I'm, I'm signed up for Lake Hodges. <laughs> oh, sweet, yeah. Yeah, so a local nearby. one here. Yeah, nearby. That's, local. you know, BWR goes on those same trails, but I we know. just do it on our bikes. Yeah. And people look at the trail and go, on your road wait, that's, those are rocks. You can't ride your bike through there. And <laughs> there's, there's a, there's a Creek. You had to get through the water <laughs> you ride through it. So where does cycling come in to your, how does that disrupt your marathon running? Um, when I was a triathlete, you know, you, I would ride a hundred miles and then come off the bike and do my brick and, we used to not, I'm not really answering your question, but we would have these funny workouts back in the day where we'd ride a hundred, 112, you know, to sort of mimic the experience. And then we'd come back and do 20, 20 miles. So we might be six or eight guys and we'd hammer each other. And then, and then you'd come off the bike and literally, you know, there's no like messing around. Like literally it's like transition. Yeah. Throw the bike, put your running shoes on and then go. And we had this 20 mile course we used to do. And we just used to see who could hang on the longest and that would be complete overtraining, but we would do that. And then we would come back and each of us would get a, a, a case of beer 
and then pres- see who could actually finish the case of beer the rest of the day. Oh, my God. Because you could do those things when right. you're in your 20s. Yeah, you yeah. could. Were you, prof- were you a professional triathlete? I was. At that time? Yeah, at the time, yeah. I mean, I was an amateur for a short yeah. period of time and then was on the U.S. national team and then became a professional triathlete. So you must have been training with some, some names that people would know. Well, these- being old... Um, <laughs> But the, the our crap. I got to. I got You're to. You're not that much older than us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good. So you'll know Mark Allen and Scott Tinley yes. and yes. Um, Mike Pig and Kenny Souza. These were mm-hmm. of course contemporaries. So the, yeah. were those some of the guys that you would do these crazy bricks with? That was the Orange County guys, which had like its own little fraternity up there, and then there was the San Diego guys. Eventually, I left the Orange County guys to be with the San Diego guys and moved down here to be closer so I could do the Wednesday ride and the Tuesday run and, mm. and swim down here. With yeah. Them. I just learned about the, the route that, like, that triathletes would, the Palomar loop, the Henshaw oh, Lake. Like, Kenny loved that. It was like a solid like, triathlon group ride. Yeah, or, and you'd hammer the and climb. And you'd hammer. And you'd yeah. time yourself. Yeah. Everyone had their time going up. And, man, the, those, I think those times would still stand up today. You do compared to, say, what Horner and Phil have more recently done on Strava. You know, some of those times were incredible, like what Kenny Souza would do back then and, and a lot of the other guys. But Kenny was the fastest of our era in terms of riding the Palomar. That's so cool. Yeah, I just experienced that for the first time last week. I haven't gone up Palomar. I'm going to do that tomorrow. But I did get out to the Henshaw yeah. Lake Loop, and it's, it's, With, there's without, a lot of climbing from here. It's oh, like just 5,000 feet. BWR goes or went out really close to Lake Henshaw at Mesa Grande. Okay. That was the furthest east we went. But you're still at like 3,200 feet at that point. And you basically started at um, sea level. Yeah. So your first 62 miles, you're just climbing out, climbing out. And eventually you come back and go down for a long time into a headwind and then eventually you end up at double peak where many people walk their bike up there <laughs> yeah yeah well i want to get in i want to break yeah. down the course yeah, so we're I'm gonna go, yeah i'm gonna go back to your yeah. to the question about how long were you in triathlon 86 then 87 i went to the world championships in france and 88 i won the world amateur duathlon championships and won a few races, turned pro, won a couple more, got hit by a car. That ruined my triathlon career. Had a year of rehab and then surfed and played music for the next 14 years and didn't race or do anything. I would run, I think I ran the marathon those years, mm-hmm. but never trained. And then um, I got back into running because it's, you know, it's an awesome, easy thing to do. And was having some fun as a master's runner and then tore my meniscus. And what you do then is they put you on a bike and thus the bike thing kicked back in. Yeah. Much to the chagrin of my wife who used to complain like, you know, Sundays we do 20 mile, we do a 20 mile loop. And so I'd be gone for two hours and 10 minutes or something. And she'd be like, you're gone all too long. And I said to her one time, I was like, you better hope that I don't get back into cycling. And sure enough, like within a month, <laughs> tore the meniscus, got back into bike racing, and and, and now you you're know it takes for a lot more time. Yes. Yeah. So like sometimes mm-hmm. we were talking about this earlier, but if the kids have let's say a 10 a.m. soccer game, 
I would get up at three, like other crazy people do, right. or no crazy people do. <laughs> Some people and crazy people. Ride like I. I remember last year, I got up at three, put the lights on, left the house um, before four or at around four in the morning. Went to Huntington Beach and back, flat. You know, it's only got rollers, and was back before the ten a.m. soccer game, and then like. I'm at the soccer game and some dude, one of the dads is really hung over and he's like, look, looking at me like, <laughs> I barely got here. And I was like, oh, really? I was like, I, I already rode 125 miles today. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good. Poor guy. Dude, dude went over and um, I think he threw up after he was, <laughs> he was having a shocker. Yeah. He's like, hair the dog. Yeah. That's what I need. <laughs> So sometimes those are the things you have to do to fit Mm -hmm. it all in, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we getting up at 345 has been a very common thing in our life. I mean, making coffee at three in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got up at three this morning. Yeah, there's something something about there's something really fun about it. I I like it. I I was writing stuff for the magazine and working on work stuff that I knew I wasn't going to get done today. So I was like, well, if I get up early. Yeah. And get a lot of stuff done and then not feel bad at the end of the day when my wife wants to just chill right. with the kids. And you're not thinking about how you have to write I can do the it. magazine. Yeah. What what do you think about that early time in the morning for being creative? It's the best for me. All the stuff that I write or create usually happens in those wee hours. The later in the day, the more distracted or tired you get or your psychic energy ends up going other places. So those early morning hours for me are most productive. Do you have like a typical morning routine that you do that you like to do? I don't have an alarm, but I get up around five. I work a bit. Then I ride, come back and take the kids to school or don't take the kids to school and then work some more. Then go to one of the various offices that I end up going to. On Tuesdays, I teach at Cal State University, San Marcos. So I know that what that day's like. Then the other days are all random. They're all meetings and, um, because I work with eight or 10 brands, depending on the day, every day is different and interesting. Yeah. And fun. Yeah. What, are, what are you teaching at the college? Just um, as an offshoot? Branding and marketing is okay. what, what I lecture on at all of, all the grad schools here in San Diego and then sometimes SC and FITM. And at Cal State University San Marcos, I am a um, executive in residence, so I help get students ready to graduate. Um, and enter the real world. I help them figure out what it is that they want to do and then help draw them a roadmap for getting there. As well as I do large session lectures as well as small group lectures there. So I do quite a few things there. And it's fun. Like when when you even just get one student out of 30 in a specific class that responds and comes to your, your office hours and wants to talk for 90 minutes, it's like it feels because you know it. that they're yeah. they're inspired. Right. Yeah. And that and that might be what that whole lecture was for was just that one person. Exactly. And I'm totally good with that. I, we're totally good with that too. Yeah. Like we we'll have one person reach out to us and and just people share like these amazing experiences that they're having from you know these interviews or something that we said on one of the podcasts that we do or something that we've written and it's like whoa. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just sharing 
our, our life experience and what we've learned. And similar, I mean, to what you're doing, a lecturer, like based on all the years, you've, you've had a lot of years of experience work, working with some big, big brands and just sharing your experience. Yeah. And like it will land, like if it lands with that one person, it's like, well, that's what it was all for. Yeah, you just touch that person, but then they end up taking that energy and spreading yeah. it out. Yeah. Ripple effect. Mm-hmm. The ripple effect is, is yeah. so powerful. And what I love most, I think, about the ripple effect is that we'll never know Mm-mm. how far it goes or how impactful it is. And so the only thing that we can do, I believe, is, as leaders, I consider myself to be uh, have leader qualities, is to just continue to do what feels right yeah. and be present and, and speak authentically from experience that there is no right or wrong. It's just this is my perspective based on the life that I've lived. And similar energies are going to, connect with that because that was always the, yeah. the plan right? yeah and, like we never know what that plan is no Which and is, isn't it fun when the one person that did hear the out of all the people that heard what you shared you don't know it's untold as to what impact you had on their right life just as a a priest giving a sermon you don't know what when people are leaving the congregation what they go out and do in mm-hmm. the world but there's probably a good chance that they they've got some bearing on life as a result of what they learned. But isn't it neat when the, someone circles back with you and says, I just got to tell you. And then they, they go on to say that one thing that you did inspired me so much. And here's what I did with it. Cause I get that through, through the BWR now is I get messages from people I don't even know. Whereas and originally the, the first race I invited 136 people. So I knew them all. And so, you know, their experience was my experience and we could share that. But now there's people that are coming from all over the world. I didn't even get to meet at the event because there's, you know, nearly 1,200 people racing. But they email me back and say, I just want you to know you changed my life, which basically means the event and their choice to commit to that, to get out of their comfort zone, to do something that, other people told them they couldn't do and then they do it it's the commitment and then it's the journey from that moment of commitment to the event that is this road of happiness Mm -hmm. and then they do it and it forever transforms their perception of themselves and the world that they live in and for sure that person has other people around them that they've had an impact on and so you know that that ripple effect that reverberation is happening but it's a delight when i hear back from them and they tell me that that this silly little thing that I created selfishly and have nurtured along somewhat selfishly has enabled people to change their lives for the better. That's the coolest part of it all. You provided, you provided them, you, you could walk them through it and speak to them and tell them like, this is how you can train and get along, but you've provided them this, this space for them to work things out on their own. Yeah. So basically they're discovering on that day, who they really are. They've done the training. Yeah. But you've provided that environment. Now they're out there on their own for I don't know how long it takes to do this. Six, 10, uh, 12, 10 hours. 16 yeah. hours, depending on it's the It's quite riding. a lot of space, a lot of yeah. time with yourself and your thoughts. And, and it, it's just such an honor to be the steward of something like that. And that's how I see us as from Yogi Triathletes. Just, we're just the stewards of this, this amazing brand that is about helping to create a better world 
through the people that are doing the work themselves, Mm -hmm. creating a better world within their community, that ripple effect and just having that that higher vibration, that higher energy that, oh my gosh, look at what I can do. That's what creates the better world. Yeah. The simple act of committing to something um, and then following through Mm -hmm. on that is um, what enables us to live fulfilled lives. Yeah. Or it's certainly a component of a fulfilled life. Yeah. So... All right, I still have in the back of my mind getting back to the cycling shift. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but now that we're on this, the question that comes up is one of the things I, I believe that really halts people in this ability to live a fulfilled life, which is our right as being humans, that we have this right to live this fulfilled life. And we have a choice. Yes, we have a choice. Yeah. But fear will get in the way. So how do people get on that other side? I mean, you're human. You had to have experienced some kind of doubts or fears along your very successful path. How do people get on the other side of it? It's never easy, but I know that from my experience and from watching students or watching other athletes, watching people I love, it it has to do with that commitment. So we're afraid to make commitments, um, so we don't. Right, we 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 get caught up in in um, this groove, if you will, of I have my job, I go there, and it's nine to five or six or whatever, and and weeks and months go by without any, without even being anything other than asleep at the wheel, and life gets in the way of being fulfilled and doing things that are important to us because oh we're making money and we're too tired and we're or deaf to what our higher self is telling us to do. So the way you do it is you have to stop and maybe even meditate on something. And meditation can be looking at the line on the bottom of the pool. It can be sitting on the trainer when you're just below LT and you're just kind of trying to find some escape. It can be literally being present and sitting there thinking and not thinking. But ultimately, there has to be the contemplation of what can I do to be living a more fulfilled life that's in tune with my higher self. So a lot of times we have to figure out what it is that we want to do that that makes us feel most alive. And then the, the thing that helps you overcome the fear is you make the commitment and the commitment is difficult because you might fail. And we have this fear of failure. People are going to laugh at us. I might not do it, you know whatever the non-motivations are. But once you're able to commit to something and live up to that commitment to yourself and you transcend that barricade, that barricade of fear, you realize that that's all BS, that those constructs that you've created or that those around you that have created, um, whether it's our parents inadvertently or our teachers or mean school kids, you couldn't run the marathon. There's no way. Oh, I'm going to run it this weekend. Um, I'm just harking back to yeah, my yeah. seventh grade experience. Um, once you overcome that, uh, the first time it makes it much easier to look at those similar fears and go, yeah, that's, you know, that doesn't, that's not me. That's not going to affect me. And it can be as, something as simple as a... Uh, a young person being interested in another person being too chicken to ask them 
to go hang out. And who knows? You know, what, what's the worst a person going to say no? And then what? Right. It's, this, it's the same essence of energy. It's yeah. just, will, it just can be more intense. But I mean, to somebody, like a, a kid saying, hey, do you want to come over and hang out? That could be as big of a fear and level of intensity as someone saying, I'm going to quit my job and start this. And move across country. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah. <laughs> Who would do that? Yeah, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of my dream house and everything I ever thought I wanted and I'm going to move across the country and I don't know where I'm going to live. Yeah. You know, it's the same, it's the same essence of fear. And what I love, I love how you described it. But I think the more and more we get to the other side of it, we know deep inside, like, wait, I've already gotten to the other side of fear before. I can yeah. do it again. And so I think that's the beauty of the mind that we can remember that we have overcome the adversity of ourselves Mm -hmm. to move forward. So if we did it once, we can do mm -hmm. it forever. Yeah. And, and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and remind others to do the same. When I was a kid, I met Timothy Leary at a book signing in Del Mar. And uh, he was left, like the thing ended and then his ride didn't come and get him. <laughs> so he's left there alone with me. And uh, this is right around 90 when I was working on the Ironman triathlon. And um, so I just sat there and just rapped with the guy. You know, I was intrigued by everything he had to say and his book, which I had read. And uh, I had this wonderful experience. And he inspired me to do a number of things um, that I won't talk about here. But I've actually given a lecture on these, these things. But one of the profound things that he shared with me is... We have the spectrum of experience in life. And a lot of us only experience this tight little um, spectrum that doesn't reach too far out because we're afraid or there's the comfort zone is, you know, is right here. It's not way out. And for those of you at home, my hands are moving way outside <laughs> um, because <laughs> Timothy Leary used the hands and he pushed them out. And he said, there's, there's two things in life. There's that which brings you joy, which is love. And that which brings you fear on the other side of the spectrum, which gets in the way of you being able to experience more joy. So he said, what you need to do is push in to the fear. You need to push into it, but like hug it and move it and hug it and move it and move it out so that your, your spectrum, your breadth of experience is getting wider and wider. And the same thing with what you love, what brings you joy is get into that even more to hug that joy even more and bring it out further so that you're broadening your, your life experience. And he sort of left it, um, left me with that, but he inspired me to do a number of experiments that I did over time. And then I ran into him again as he was dying of cancer. He refused to go the normal treatment, right? He had prostate cancer and he just sort of embraced his death and did so valiantly and interestingly like a and wrote a bu book about it. Mm. But um, my band was playing at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go on the fabulous Sunset Strip. And his son was a friend of the, uh, like the band. So his dad was there. And I was like, Timothy, do you remember meeting me in Del Mar? And then he was like, oh, yeah. And he's like totally remembered it because it's probably five years, six years had gone by. And um, he he reminded me at that time what we had talked about 
And he said, do you remember what I said about joy and fear? And I was like, yes. And in fact, this is what I've done since. And we had this glorious conversation. And then, you know, he ended up um, moving on uh, the next year. And that's no different than your student yeah. <laughs> coming to you or your athlete no from just... BWR and saying, this is what I did with what, with what you gave me. And so for people who don't know who Timothy Leary is. Who... Yeah. Uh, so Timothy Leary was a Harvard professor who was the progenitor of LSD usage. And so at the time in the 60s, um, LSD was legal. And, and he was all hooked up with like the Ram Dass crew, right? Yeah, that, yeah. that came as a byproduct of his life experience. Yeah. So he went from being this revered professor to being, you know, a pariah. He was He's... dismissed from his role there and uh, became a criminal on the lam for, you know, predictable stuff. Um, but then became, you know, the, 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 let's just call him the progenitor of the counterculture movement. And, um, you know, drugs and lots of other things, but he was always more, um, he wanted to be responsible with it, but you know, in his exuberance, he was irresponsible with it. Right. And, and, but a, a genius and a great teacher and a great point of view, but you know, his legacy was so much tarnished by the aftermath of him leaving Harvard and all that, but a fantastic philosopher. Yeah. And, it sounds like an intellect who was very much in touch with his higher mind. He was, and some would argue that, you know, he did that artificially. Um, and I would say, well, does it matter? He, he got there, you know? Yeah. Um, we can all get there. We can choose different means, but mm -hmm. we can all get there. Um, and that was what was important to him is not necessarily this tab or this drug, but that you realize you have a higher self that you can get in touch with. And why not do that? Why not? Just like, why not live like Christ, right? Whether you believe that Christ died for our sins, the way he lived his life is, is the way we should live our lives. And right. there's other people we can point to throughout history that you could say that's how you could live your life. Christ just happens to be an easy example. Of why not just live that way? But I was just really lucky to, to meet him, and he was really intrigued with my experiments that I did that he had inspired because he never knew. In, in the span of his existence of what he taught people and what he inspired in people, no one had ever done what I had done um, based on his nudging. And just, just so it's not such a, why doesn't he tell us what he did? Um, <laughs> there was a whole host of experiments that I did. But one of them was, uh, I, I want to try, I, I had a comeback from my triathlon experience. Like I think it was 88 when I got hit by the car and had to stop. But then I made a comeback after working on the Ironman. Basically the folks at Gatorade that were the title sponsor, they had a bet that I couldn't be the first athlete to break nine hours, um, for their first Ironman. So I was like, oh, I'll take that bet, no problem. And so there was this $1,000 bet that was placed at that table. So I became motivated. And so I won the Ironman qualifier, but I did it um, under the influence of LSD, which, you know, Whoa. some people are like, what? That's, wow. I and love awesome. that experience. It was incredible. <laughs> what course was it? It's, uh, it's the Ventura, it's called Mike and Rob's Most Excellent Triathlon. <laughs> 
Anyway, I won that. Sounds race like the most excellent one to was, do on LSD. Well, it, <laughs> there might have been a few, but that that one was uh, a fun one. And then um, the hundredth running of the Boston Marathon. It's a similar experience. Interesting. Um, so, but I but what there's a story that I love, um, and I, T- Timothy O'Leary may I mean Timothy Leary may even have been there, but it's. The story when Ram Das goes to India and he's with the Maharaji and and the Maharaji says, well, let me take some of that. And he's talking about the LSD and and he's, well, only take a little bit, you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing this. Only take a little bit because it's really powerful. And the Maharaji, give it to me. So he mm-hmm. takes like a whole bunch of LSD oh, no. and yeah. it has zero effect on him. Yeah, good. Yeah, it has no effect on him whatsoever. And essentially, that's the moment when Ram Dass realized, like, wait that. a minute, there's another way that I can get to the place that yeah. I want to stay at. This is at. a shortcut. This is the shortcut. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. I mean, it's definitely mind-expanding. Ex- yeah, so that I was lucky enough to have those just incredible encounters with him those years, with the years in between, where I actually acted on the things that he had told me in the first instance and then was able to share them with him later. It was just one of those. And then he left the world. And then he did. That's yeah. really cool. Really cool bookends. Mm-hmm. All right. So now that we're talking about triathlon again. So yeah, your wife's like two hour run too long. Yeah. And now you're like, guess what? I'm getting so I'm back, back on into the bike. Cy- I'm getting back into cycling, yeah. honey. And that just <laughs> takes more time and so is, is this when the BWR started to... No. Um, but we're getting to the genesis of it. So uh, I started racing pretty quickly and was really into it. And, and a friend of mine does this thing called the French Toast Ride, which is 118 miles in Ventura, coincidentally, and around that area. Such a cool area. I love that. It's awesome Love it riding. up there. And it's invite only. It's in 30 people. And they go out and we'd hammer each other and it was a lot of fun. And his, Dave's family would make French toast. We'd eat that. We'd do the ride. We'd come back, eat more food and then go. And so, uh, at some, you know, a couple of years into that, I had taken a job to turn around Spy Optic. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a publicly traded eyewear company down here. So when I moved down here, I asked him, for permission, I said, look, I want to do something called the Belgian waffle ride because I'm Belgian. I want to make it more like a one day spring classic, like a proper road race. That's really long. That's punctuated by, you know, cobblestone sectors, but we don't have cobblestones here. Mm -hmm. So I had to introduce dirt and create this race that was more in line with the type of racing that I personally am good at. Longer stuff, not really long climbing, but punchy climbs. I love that stuff. And dirt, because I'm a cyclocross racer. So he said, sure, you can do that, no problem. And then that was the first year, of course, he was invited. And, uh, and it as was I mentioned, invite only. 136 people, yeah. I think, invited. And then the only caveat was, you need to tell everyone, if you had a great time at this event, you need to tell them. So the next year, we introduced the, the, the event to everyone that wanted to pay to do it. And we had you know, 300 and some odd people pay money. And then the next year, 600 and some odd people, and then so on and so forth. So it's had this nice growth trajectory. But the whole idea was to create something that didn't exist, that sort of filled a hole that existed in 
the United States cycling world, which, you know, the one day classics didn't exist. No one was doing these, you know, they call them gravel grinders. Now I don't think of our event as a gravel grinder. Um, it's a road race that's got these punctuating mm-hmm. sectors and it's the kind of event where, Hmm, what bike am I going to ride? Like you don't know what weapon you're going to bring to the battle. And that's part of the allure of it is, okay, it's really long, it's hard, it's in dirt, and I don't know which vehicle I'm going to ride. So there's all these considerations. What tire width? What do I do about comfort? What do I do about clearance? What do I do about mud? And all these factors that you know, sort of inform your bike decision, your training. And it forces you to orient yourself towards that moment on the calendar that you've committed to because you have to train to get through it. You have to know your equipment. You have to be comfortable in the dirt. You have to know all the various things that you're going to encounter because otherwise one surprise just might blow you away and say, okay, I'm done, which might even just be the headwind that you encounter on Mm -hmm. the way back. And it's blossomed in people's minds as this alternative to anything else they could do on the bike. And thus it has this allure that, people have come from all over the world to do now. So the total distance is a hundred and it's, so it's been six different courses in six years. Next year will be the seventh. Last year was 146 miles. This year was 132 miles, but most everyone that finished this year said this year was harder than last year. So I don't know. Every year is different. Why do you change the course every year? The, well, Part of it is the desire to give a new experience and to create an even better masterpiece. And the other part of it is the county forces us to change all the time. So we've never been able to agree with them on a great course. Last year's was awesome, but they said, oh, you got to change it now. So we're sort of at the whim of the county. And they're talking to USA Cycling. They said San Diego County is the most difficult county in the entire United States to get a bike race permitted. And I believe them because it's crazy. It's like the county does not want anyone to ride a bike or to do these events. So they make it increasingly more difficult to put on. And as soon as you get the first checklist done, they say, oh, well, we've got more checklists for you because, in fact, we're just going to keep adding checklists until you give up. And then when you don't give up, finally, the Friday night before the event, they give you a permit. So every one of the years... I've never gotten the permit before 5 p.m. on Friday, before the event, except this year I got it at 2.38 p.m. on Friday. Well, we had, we met you at Steady State Coffee, which is... Like the week before? I think it was the week before. It was the week before, and and you were were on a ride, a Friday morning ride, and you came up and you had a coffee, and we were just chatting with you, and you were saying that you you had submitted the, the... course in that, like February or something November. like that. November. Yeah. And then they didn't, they didn't even respond to me till March. And yes. they said, we didn't even look at your course, but we just want to make sure that you're doing it for the CAF again, this year challenged athletes foundation. Yeah. Yes. Oh, we'll get back to you about the course. So it wasn't until April. And you were like, I haven't, I, you know, I so that was the permit. Friday. Probably won't have the permit for a while. <laughs> and the race is like yes. a couple weeks away or, or less. So I think that Friday I submitted the, one of 16 courses 
and by like Tuesday, I'd gotten sort of a verbal that, yeah, we think this one will work out. So Wednesday, because it was a new course, I got up early, drove to the Lost Abbey where the event starts and finishes and rode the entire course myself, you know, by myself to just make sure that it was passable because mm-hmm. they had made us change things. It's like, oh man, I got to go out and actually ride this thing. I can't just, you know, send people. So I got to enjoy the course, as I mentioned. In, that's by good, myself that's by a, yourself that's a yeah. good word enjoy so how what was it this year so in the past it's been about 40 miles of dirt yeah like 41 this year i think and i mean these guys are on i love the the recipe that needs to go into this race because they're on mountain bike single track sometimes yeah, yeah really like rocky stuff rocky stuff sandy Deep stuff sand. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be muddy. That little bridge with, uh, over the water. There's mm-hmm. water crossings. Last year, there was even more little bridges and water crossings. And and then, did you take them up Double Peak again this year? Yeah, every year we've gone up Double Peak. So And that's towards the end of the... It's like mile one... Last year, it was like mile 139. Give us a rundown of what this year's course looked like. Um, so the beginning was completely altered by the county. We had this incredible beginning that we don't encounter really any lights except for one in Rancho Santa Fe at a T-bone intersection. So easy for the CHP to control. And then a, a network of dirt trails before we head out. This year they made us cut all of that out because they didn't want us riding through there two hours before the 9.30 church service that happened on that road, which is just completely asinine. So we ended up going north into Escondido and going up to what's called Deer Springs. And then on the other side of the freeway, Deer Springs does this. It goes straight up and it's called Mountain Meadows. So that's at exactly mile seven. You turn right and you climb up this wall. And I would warned everyone, like, you know, it's just, terrible climb how many miles yeah, up is that it's just like one mile but it like what's the great greatest pretty it's steep. like a, i don't know a steep, <laughs> how steep is it has his arm it's almost like, like straight a, yeah 90 degree <laughs> it's, angle it's uh terrible but um so phil <laughs> phil guyman got the kom on that and then was you know th- that was the first kom there's three koms that you race up to you know get a collective time and but then it goes down a dirt section called cougar pass which is awesome climbing up but it's terrible going down (laughs) and people were taking it too fast and going off the side or they were losing their water bottles because they didn't have the right kind of cages so and this is all dirt here and this is like the beginning yeah this is mile 10 nice and you're going down dirt and you're losing your water bottles and the first aid station was at like mile 25 which was sand, mm-hmm. which was completely impassable. So here comes the leaders. <laughs> you have that. to dismount, get off your bike, carry your bike across the river, which is now just filled with sand, to the other side, get back on your bike, and go. There is an aid station strategically located there. We didn't expect so many people to stop at the aid station. It was a hot day, and all those people had lost their water bottles. Oh, yeah. So we ran out of water for like 60 people there at the first aid station, but we were loaded heavy towards the back where we felt like, okay, people are going to really be stopping later on. This is mile 25. They still have 107 miles to go. Yeah. Like those guys, the guys that are going to come through first are going to be coming through fast and yeah, they're not even going to want it. Oh man. So we ran out of water for like 60 people 
um, which was a real bummer. And that kind of set off a cascade of stress of us having to get water, Mm -hmm. go out and buy more water and bring it to the other aid stations. And then one group of 30 people that were going to own the Ramona station just did not show up that morning. They no-showed. It was a bunch of fraternity dudes. So we had to scramble to get people to drive out to Ramona to man this aid station. Good thing you were racing. On the fly. I know. <laughs> it's the first year I haven't raced. And if I hadn't have raced, I do not know how this stuff would have gotten sorted. So I didn't even plan on being out on the course that day at all. I thought I'd be back at Command Central talking on the phone, directing people. But I went out to the first aid station because I wanted to see people in the sand dismounting because <laughs> yeah. I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. And it's not that far from the Lost Abbey, so I could skedaddle back. Once I was there, I worked the entire aid station doing directing, directing with traffic, and then f- literally filling water bottles with the big jugs till the last person went. Cleaned up the entire thing so that it was cleaner than before we got there, and then went on and just followed the wafer course, which is a 68 mile course all the way back. I went from one aid station to the next, to the next, to the next, getting water, getting provisions, filling it all up so that they were ready. I did not get back to the finish until just before the finisher of the waffle event came in. So I was out on course all day, like moving, moving water jugs and moving tables and things. I was more sore this year than all the other years when I actually raced it. Oh, of course. Because you don't train for, for lifting water. tables and pouring <laughs> water jugs and all that. All right, so tell us about the rest of the course. So they come through this first aid station, which oh, yeah, so sounds like a disaster. It, it was for 60 people, but there's <laughs> 1,200 people doing it. Oh, perfect. Um, I Percentages. still feel bad for those, yeah. for those folks. <clears throat> um, so you go through this dirt section, and then you climb up Bandy Canyon, um, and then you turn left on Highland Valley, and Highland Valley is this climb that has like four or five pitches to it and it's four or five miles to the top. It's five miles from the bottom. Um, but we turned left a mile up. So it's four miles to the top. That's KOM number two. And then you're up in Ramona. So it's kind of flat for a while. You go through Ramona proper and then you get to this road. It's called black Canyon and it just becomes dirt, but it's a County maintained road. And it goes up to Mesa Grande. And up there, there's an Indian reservation. I, when I rode it on Wednesday, it's in 11 miles of dirt. I saw one motorcycle, one fox, and two cows on that, that particular <laughs> rush hour traffic. So there's no one out there at all. And um, so it climbs up, then it goes down. And it's really tricky, sandy descent. And then it climbs up for another seven miles. You have this sustained climb for seven miles. It's nuts. People always eat it on the downhill. And my friend Carl was leading the race. My teammate off the front is the multiple state and national time trial champion. He's a triathlete, Carl Bordine. Um, he ate it really hard and was unable to finish. Mm. So um, he was out. And uh, a kid, Sam, had gone off the front and was chasing him. So Sam ended up spending 80-plus miles alone on the front of the race until Jesse Anthony, who ended up winning, who also is is a triathlete, but he's a professional cyclist, he um, caught Sam, I think, around mile 110. And Sam had been chasing since mile 30. So um, he spent a lot of alone time. Talk about being in a meditative state. Mm. Um, 
so that that climb up Mesa Grande is incredibly beautiful dirt road through this canyon there's like waterfalls on the side and little pools of water and it's just pristine and you like wait we're like Ramona's right there but all of a sudden you're like in the wilderness mm. climbs up to Mesa Grande and then basically it heads starts heading over towards Lake Henshaw where you were and then comes back around and starts heading west on Highway 78 we take a ride at Sutherland Dam beautiful another backdrop for the event and that descends this dirt road where lots of people ate it because they didn't they didn't see the 20 signs that said slow the funk down <laughs> slow down um and then you climb back up that dirt where carl had crashed then you descend back down and essentially you take the highway all the way back to bandy canyon where we left off earlier and you get on this three mile sandy dirt very tricky section that's just can I you ride it. it or you, you can you can okay. totally ride the whole thing but it, some people a lot of people eat it yeah <laughs> i just don't quite manage it but i was gonna say uh andre um who is a challenged athlete foundation athlete who's done done the event a number of times he did the wafer ride on his tt bike which is like nuts you know, people are doing it on their mountain bikes and their cross bikes and altered road bikes, and he's doing it on his TT bikes. So. The skinny wheels. And, totally. Yeah. Just just like your wow. Quintana Roo there. Um, so then we climb back up Bandy Canyon, and then now you get to the tricky part. You've gone nearly 100 miles, and you get to what's called the Mule Trail. You guys will you'll run this at some point. It's an awesome trail. It's kind of hard to ride on the bike, but you get on that, <laughs> and... Do the dirt section to mile 100 where there's another aid station. Lots of people there. Um, the Swami Cycling Group were supporting that, and they had like 30 people there helping out. Then you get on the road for like 50 yards, and then you get back on another trail. And that's the, the really challenging Lake Hodges Trail that's a part of the event that you're going to do. And there's the water crossing. There's the rock garden. It's this just challenging thing that a lot of people flat on or crash or give up oh my god their bodies i'm just thinking about like no shocks like on their bikes their bodies yeah. must just be getting terrain too yeah and you're using your your parts of your body you don't normally do to stay upright and to navigate and one year on that part i was riding with my teammate and we were in fourth and fifth place it was like mile 100 and we're on that stretch and we're chasing the guy in third and literally i felt like a bomb had gone off and my bike had exploded but the back wheel had exploded and my handlebar had cracked off we pushed <laughs> and and ryan he goes take my bike and then right he says, says bike you hear this and he got a flat so we we basically got our bikes the next mile where there was an aid station, I borrowed a back wheel and then did it with one handlebar the next 30 miles. With just, <laughs> of course just, you did. And Ryan got a wheel and we were able to finish. It's like the essence of this race. Yeah, you like something you like have that. to figure out right. a way to yeah. finish. So this year, we didn't go that way. We, went, we stayed on the trail by Lake Hodges and never actually got on Del Dio's for a long time. So we stayed on this really tricky series of trails that like get, gets more and more difficult. And... Um, 
a lot of people that had never done the event really didn't like that section. They're like, you could take that out, you know, and it would be fine. I was like, no, actually, we have to leave that in. That's where it gets difficult. That's where you actually are challenged just to stay upright, mm-hmm. and that's part of the dynamic of the and, event. But then you're getting close to the finish, right? Like, you're close to the finish, but you're so broken down, and it's really difficult, and, like, that's... That's, that's where it gets time. down yeah. to like you transcend, right? That's it, yes. man. You're putting them in that space without yeah. them like truly knowing about it. You're just like dumping them in there. Like, what are you gonna do? That's where the, the yoga go. mind comes in. <laughs> you know, hopefully they've they've got it. And a lot of don't. A lot of them. A lot, a lot they don't. Don't agree. make it. So you come out of that trail at like mile one ten. You've got some road to contend with, and then you've got a series of one mile or one kilometer dirt sections one after the next after the next where you're like oh not another one of these because it forces you to go slow to be attentive to use gearing that you're not used to using and then it basically does that all the way to double peak you get to double peak you make it the left you start climbing up it's a mile climb yeah and double peak it talk hits, about the pitch of that that's it gets no to 23 percent at one point 23 percent yeah. So it's like, so if you, you can Boulder, see my arm, Colorado that's basically people, vertical. That's, it's bigger that, than old stage. Yeah, that makes old stage like <laughs> a joke. Yeah, double. I was doing some training up there for Mendocino. And yeah, I would see oh, people, yeah. cyclists, just mm-hmm. doing repeats up yep. there. I called BJ. I was like, you got to get your butt out here and you need to start doing repeats up I stumbled up upon peak. it one day. Yeah, yeah. I got up What there. good is it to do repeats where you're only going five <laughs> miles an hour? <laughs> and I've done it. So, um, but then you get to the top and you're like, you realize that it's nothing but downhill from yeah. here. But you go downhill only for a little bit, and then you have to take a sharp right and get on the trail, which you've probably run. There's this zigzag trail that yeah. cuts on the north side all yep. the way back over to Twin Oaks Valley where you go down the hill. So you have to do that trail. A lot of people eat it on that trail. Oh, they yeah. Get, and I'm like, almost there. I'm almost there. Yeah. And then they crash. Because that's um, a fast section. It can be. Yeah. yeah, I bet it is. And then you get to the road and no more trails. You descend down and it's within a few miles, you're back at the Lost Abbey and drinking Belgian ale. Nice. And eating Belgian waffles. Yep. Delicious. Nice. So <laughs> you had 1,200 people Yep. start. How Almost. many people did you have finish? Oh, so there's the waffle, which is the big one that had like 700 and some odd people start. And I think 400 and some change finished. A lot of attrition. Lots, like 40%. And then um, the waffle or the wafer, the shorter one, 68 miles, that had about 400 and some odd people and 360, I think, finished. So pretty, pretty, well, there was about 30% DNF on that one too. So whatever that ends up being mathematically. And I bet so many of those people will be back we hope finish what they started. some of them will never come back but but then there's always new victims that come along right, that right, we can right. nurture through the process yeah it's a, I, i'm going to include a video it was from the 2014 one and just watching it i was my eyes were all wide i was like this looks awesome as i'm seeing just so much carnage and people being like oh it's like you feel like you're gonna die and then you feel elated and then you like, but you got to get to the finish and so i'm gonna put that video in i'll there send and, you some links to the other oh, ones because okay. there's some Really fun ones. And then I'll send you the minute one that I hope to have finished today. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because um, this will air in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, good. We have time. Yeah. yeah. It will air yep. probably cool. in about three or four weeks, actually, because mm-hmm. we've got Great. a couple in the queue. But I know that our listeners are going to, they're going to be, I told you, they're going to be well, Let's drooling. hope they're intrigued, right? Yeah, yeah. Get them out here. 
We're sucking them into all these California races. I love it. <laughs> so the Belgium waffle ride, six years, big success. And this started when you were working at Spy. I was a CEO at Spy and was involved in this massive turnaround of this company that was ailing. And one of the things I always like to do at the companies that I go to turn around is turn the marketing into um, a profit center. So rather than just spending money, we didn't have money to spend because the four CEOs before me had spent it all. So we had to be creative with how we market. And I thought, well, one of the things I wanted to do is create this really enigmatic thing that fit the spy brand, which is extremely difficult, but had this fun name called the Belgian waffle ride. So there's this dichotomy to it. It's really, really painful and difficult, but it had this name that belied its challenge. And then we made it really fun. And all the wonderful people at spy gave their time and energy to make it this unique event. And, um, we made money from it. And then we'd turn around and spend that on more marketing. And it's the way you should market. Like it, it was the single most covered event or thing that we did as a brand was this one silly little event that started in our parking lot. And so it's, it had a tremendous rub off for the brand. It supported the brand ethos that I had created and the, the spirit and the vision mm-hmm. of the brand. So it all worked synergistically. But when I left, I told them, hey, look, you know, you guys don't care about cycling anymore. I'm going to take the BWR with me um, and I'm going to nurture this thing and make it what I had intended for it to always be. So that's what I've been doing the, the last couple of years now um, on my own without Spy being involved. And you're doing that under your brand, Creative Disruption? So that's a company called Monuments of Cycling because we have other events planned. Mm-hmm. And then Creative Disruption is my agency. So I work with lots of other brands um, doing marketing and branding. And then, um, as I mentioned, there's the university. And then I'm also a part owner of Monster Media Racing, which is a team that's in 18 chapters in the U.S. Or we're the strongest Southern California cycling team. Um, but we have all these other chapters that we basically help people become really great racers. Mm. So we take them from being recreational cyclists to good cyclists to being, you know, Pros. The idea is to have them matriculate through and, you know, be serious cyclists. So that's Monster Media. Quite busy, it seems. A little bit too much. <laughs> and so looking at your creative disruption, so it seems like, especially with Spy, you sort you worked with what you had and you had to sort of interject a, a different way of thinking because I think the normal normal routine in marketing is to, you know, you need to spend advertising, you need to yeah. figure out, do surveys, find your market, spend money, attract more people. When you don't have that resource, you need to be creative. Mm-hmm. So do you feel your path in life has always been that way to, to think the alternative, to be disruptive? And if so, where, where do you think that comes from? Where, where is that, where is that drive from? Is it from running a marathon at 12 years old, which isn't what normal kids do at 12 years old. But thinking back, like where is, where is that drive to just be a little bit against the grain a little bit, if that makes sense? No, it does. You know, I was fortunate enough to grow up 
in a time with parents that were really supportive and nice and athletic where I swam and I ran and I surfed and I played soccer and I played baseball and I played basketball and my parents let us do all that. I, I was, I traveled as a skateboarder as a kid and did exhibitions and competed and I was just given the opportunity to do all these things. And in that sort of fertile ground of, yeah, sure, do whatever you want to do. Um, I would be a bit inventive by creating events from a young age. And even my parents, like they hosted a running event that had like, I think, eight different stops uh, <laughs> where you drink. So it's like literally you'd run a mile and then drink and, and um, which led into my interest in doing the beer mile. I was just going to ask you. So <laughs> like uh, as, as a, I don't know what I 40, almost 50 year old man, I ran like a 526 beer mile, which is still the super masters world record. But that's because my parents taught me how to drink and run. I hadn't even run in a year when I did that, but I was really good at drinking still. <laughs> so what a gift. I, the, just the drinking is awesome. <laughs> so um, to answer your question, in college, when I, I was president of my fraternity, and before that, I was the treasurer, and I was like, I got, we got to make money. So I created a, an event that um, was like, you know, precursor to Lollapalooza at our school, but off campus, this massive event. And I got Coors to fund it and they gave us 50 kegs and $2,000. And then we charged people to get in. So we had thousands of people there and just incredible. And I was like, ah, oh, this is, this is fun. You know, how can we create, how can I create other things that capture people's imagination and parlay that into positivity wherever I'm at? So it seemed like every place that I went, there was always the challenge of, Hey, dude, we don't have that much money, but we really got to, you know, the, the board of directors are really looking for some growth this year. What can we do? And I would inevitably come up with campaigns or product or product campaigns that would move the needle and that were at times Machiavellian. Like one time I was at Globe, which is a publicly traded company out of Australia. It's the largest manufacturer of skateboards on the planet. They have 12 different brands plus the Globe brand. And we were making the surf film that we had made for years. We'd been making for years and it was going to be like our huge thing. And we were known for making great films. It was going to be our marketing initiative for that year. So I had one of the foremost surf film photographers who was involved in it. And I said to him, Hey, look, we're going to call this movie secret machine and you're going to publicly quit. You're going to send out a press release to the world saying, you don't agree with what we're doing. What we're doing is dishonest. We're using machines to do things and you can no longer be affiliated. And so I wrote the press release for him. I created an email specific to him that came to me and we pulled one over on the surf industry. The most amazing thing was people bought it and I was getting emails from other very famous filmmakers saying, I always hated those guys and those guys, you know, <laughs> just like email after email. And, um, and then when it came time to the, the U.S. Open, we did the, f the film premiere. We had people picketing the film, you know, you know, like the machine is evil and 
it was amazing. We paid them to do that picketing. And then we had the premiere and we had people out front premier, uh, picketing the premiere. And it was like the biggest to do ever. And it went on to be like the, of this century. So since 2000, like the, the surf film that sold more copies than any other surf film. Oh, yeah. So just stuff that, like that. That's just like true. That's just true. Like grassroots marketing. That's just like getting like, yeah, you're getting down cost and, you that yeah, much. You're getting you're, down and dirty and planning it out and like everyone talked about it. Mm-hmm. And then the trade publication after wrote an entire story about how we pulled one over on the worldwide surf industry. And then when I was at Spy, again we didn't have money, but we created the Happy Lens, which literally was the greatest lens technology to have been created in fifty or sixty years. But um we didn't have the money like Oakley would to promote this incredible technology. So I got a billboard that cost $3,300 Encinitas and Moonlight Beach. Oh, yeah. yeah the, the billboard's still there, isn't it? Uh, I don't think Spy does it anymore. But Yeah, but there's a billboard over there. There is a billboard. It's yeah. above Ride. Yeah. 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 So we did, um, we did a billboard that said simply, happy to sit on your face. And the spy logo. And of course, there was this uproar about it, which I intended. The Clear Channel that owns the billboard said, if anyone complains, we have to take the billboard down. I was like, yes, you do. So as soon as it went up, we contacted the local patch. So patch.com ran a a poll, clever or crass, and the picture of the billboard. And then it's been the single most engaged poll they've ever done where Tons, hundreds and hundreds of people are chiming in. And I'm having people on our team chime in against it and for it and keep fueling the fire of this discourse over this billboard. And then I had someone call to complain to take it down. And then they called me and said, oh, we have to take it down. Someone complained. I was like, oh, yes, you do. So I had 60 picketers there to protest the billboard being taken down. So then we had the news agencies, the helicopters, everyone. It's six in the morning and they're taking down this billboard. And, you know, the signs are saying, you know, what's wrong with happy? And happy does sit on your face because sunglasses do sit on your face, right? And this was in August and September. This is the beginning of September now. The happy lens wasn't even going to deliver until February. But we created this PR firestorm, if you will. So the next couple of weeks I spent on the morning talk shows talking about the billboard, but more importantly, talking about the happy lens and the science behind it and what it meant. And then we just, every month we'd put a new billboard up that would get people laughing. Some of them complaining. It was always like one, one notch below offensive, but maybe offensive for some. And then I'd back it off a little bit and do do something a bit more benign and then come back a month later and hit people with what? So this whole series, years worth of, years worth of uh, billboard images. But by the time, and by the way, uh, Adweek did two articles on it, CNN, Huffington Post, Daily UK, every major news outlet had done a story on this billboard and the Happy Lens. So by the time the Happy Lens delivered in February, it sold out immediately and it had an incredible bearing on the company's turnaround story. So... Basically, the 
quarter before that, or maybe two quarters before that, we started on this really great run. We had 14 quarters in a row of year-over-year growth just based on the invention of the Happy Lens, leveraging a $3,300 a month billboard and being clever with how we told that story so that it wasn't just a billboard that 11,000 people saw every day. It was a billboard that millions and millions and millions of people saw because it was promoted by Mm -hmm. these media outlets. And that was, you know, significant part of the turnaround story at Spy. And those are just things you have to do and have to create. So these are case studies that I use when I lecture at the different colleges. Like here's, you think you don't know what to do, but if you think about it long enough, some solution will avail itself to you and you have to go with that. Even if people are saying, no, it's too scary. Or, you know, they're trying to tell you all the things that could go wrong. You have to do it. Yeah, you're not fitting that box of marketing 101. It's like the safe route of like, do this, this, and this. What you did was you built anticipation every month. Every month. What's going to be up there? Oh, there's nothing this month. But they're still talking about it. Yeah, every did you month see what they did last yeah. month? Yeah. And then you would hit them again with the next one. So you're, you're keeping your audience so tapped into that spot. And I'm, sure, I'm assuming you're looking the for same it. spot every time. And then we would take those billboards and turn them into print ads or digital mm-hmm. ads. My kids were going to school right near where the billboard was. So some of the parents didn't like me very much, uh, but I always talked to my kids about it. But one of them was um, John John Florence, who's the best surfer on the planet, was one of our athletes. And we had a picture of him kind of chilling on the sofa like this, kind of smiling with his eyes kind of half closed. So all of these billboards were, were word driven, right? They're copy driven with an image. So the copy on this one, really big copy was sofa, king, happy. Right. right. So for a few weeks, those that knew, we go, oh, so fucking happy. That's cool. Um, but my daughter, who at the time was like nine, she was like, <laughs> she was like, daddy, what does it mean? What does it mean? And I was like, Romy, say it fast three times. And then she, you know, in her little nine-year-old way, she did. And she goes, <laughs> puts her hand over her mouth and goes, <laughs> and the next day she went and told all the kids at school. Oh boy. And then I got the call. Oh, <laughs> Every yeah. parent now is like, like <laughs> oh, great. You know, now I got to explain this to my kids. Um, so, you know, that the byproduct of that when you're pushing the envelope is you have to be comfortable with, mm-hmm. you know, what's might come on the other side. Um, so I always made clear with my kids what was going on. So there was never any need for dishonesty. You know, like this is marketing. Some people aren't going to like this. This is what this means. Um, and it's okay. It's not okay for you to use these words. You don't hear your mom and dad use them, but sofa King is not using that word, but it's getting people to take it there. And that's kind of funny. Um, so anyway, that was just one, but you know, there yeah. was so many other ones like in Encinitas, you know, it's like this, uh, this granola, wheatgrass, you know, everyone's doing yoga. It's, you know, we're free and open and happy. But, um, the one caption was when wheatgrass and yoga aren't enough. And then the happy lens, right? Like every time we did something, there was like something that was just like, made you smile and mm-hmm. go, Oh, that's, I get it. Yeah, well, it's funny because, yeah, there's 
the community is so open, but then they're... They're not. Right. Well, it was funny. I actually was doing some research not too long ago about uh, teaching yoga at some of the schools and just seeing if they had a program in Carlsbad. There is a massive uproar in Encinitas oh, about yoga. Oh, it was yoga. incredible. It, unbelievable because it of the religious in, overtones and, yeah. and demanding so they, the superintendent be fired or resign. I it mean, was a massive... This is where Paramahansa Yogananda set up the... Self-realization right, right fellowship. This is like the yoga. If there's a yoga capital, this is definitely uh, one of them. It seems like it, it seems like you know Encinitas. Yeah, is definitely that. that was so. Well, I mean, and, and you have to have. There's always a balance, right? So the, there are those people that are probably totally fine with it. Thought it was great, and it's just words Most are everyone. words. Yeah, but then but then you have to have that balance. So yeah. you know those other folks that you know are are rising up against yoga in the schools, which blows me away. If you look at if you look at the the actual like definition of yoga, it's a science. It's a mm-hmm. science. It's the science of the mind. But everybody takes their own spin on it. They take it very personally, and that's what was happening with those billboards. But you're creating conversation. Yep. And. I think that's another place where fear comes in, where people like start to write something and they say, "Oh, I can't because it's going to, it's people aren't going to like it." Or I'm gonna, we were going to ju- like me. BJ and yeah. I were just yeah. talking about this the other uh, night, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and ruffling feathers. And how do you sit with that? How does that not affect you? Or is that just built into you? You're a disruptor. It's so clear. Um. It, well, it stems back to like the earlier question about the upbringing. My parents availed, you know, we went to church every weekend. We, you know, we lived this very normal life, but we were able to do whatever we wanted and we were encouraged. I was a drummer and an artist and yeah. same with my brothers. And we were taught that it, it doesn't matter what other people think of you. As long as you're doing what you, feels right to you, and that sort of repeated itself through life. And then the other thing is, as you mature and matriculate through your career, inevitably you get more and more responsibility. And my dad always taught me this. He, I used to hear him talking to my sister, who was very popular and a really wonderful person. He would t- say, Susan, you know, People are going to be mean to you. And the, the nicer you are, the prettier you are, the more successful you are, the more they're going to come after you. And you have to just be ready for that. And you have to learn to love them even more and not respond with anything other than more love. And as I matriculated through my career, you become more and more, um, you're managing larger groups of people. And you're trying, and most of the time I was engaged to disrupt like, hey, our company is failing and we need to change it. So what that means typically is you end up having to get rid of a lot of people who inevitably hate you because you come in and fire mm-hmm. them. And so if you've done that enough, I, it's been decades of doing that where you come in, you evaluate a situation, you realize that there are people on the team that shouldn't be there. You have to be the bad guy that gets rid of them. And then you build a new team for success. Everyone's aligned spiritually and wonderful things manifest from that. But it's in the process of doing those things for work, and they're uncomfortable things. You have to grow calluses to what other people are going to think of you. And you have to get to the point where you don't care. As long as your mission is one 
that's altruistic or to benefit the greater good and not one that's maligned in any way. But, you know, you're, you're hired to turn around something. If you, you take the job because you believe in the task at hand and then you do it, but it's uncomfortable to deal with that. And so anytime you're in that position, like my dad told my sister, people are going to come after you. Mm -hmm. And it's even like that, say on Strava, you know, like people want to take your KOMs for whatever reason. Yes. And they will like get groups of people or pay other people to do them. Or a guy will have his wife drive in front of him to beat your KOM. <laughs> I was with someone and on and on and, and totally on. with Lorenzo back east. Like it's and nuts. then you peel off and then he like yeah, gets then that you, last second to get there it's you. Yeah. 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 And around here there's culture. a lot of that. Yeah, that, that well there's a lot of solid solid rock and cyclists around here and uh-huh. athletes, athletes. I don't mind them. The ones that, you know, <laughs> take it legitimately. Yeah. But, but I think you touched upon something that's so important is that when when what you're doing is in line in line with your purpose and you are so clearly living in your purpose when you're doing something that's aligned with your purpose that fills you up that you know it's you're being driven from your heart and when you're driven from your heart it is for the greater good it mm-hmm. is for the good of all that you can disrupt in that way and that that passion for your purpose is so strong that the the rest is eventually going to fall away, even if it is still loud and coming yeah. at you. It can fall away in your focused vision to keep moving forward. And um, somebody said to me once, "Don't worry about what other people think of you. It is none of your business." Yeah, that's that's a good one. I used to. Um I've played music my whole life and I've been a drummer and played in all these really cool bands. And f- for much of the immature part of my music career, I was always playing live and I would always try and embellish or do a little bit more or add in something or be clever. Just as maybe we do with when we write something. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, well, I'll put this word in here. And um, that actually detracts from what it is that you're doing, which is this collective presentation of this this idea. And it wasn't until much later in life that I realized that if I just played the least amount possible, that I was availing to the song its ultimate essence to be given to the crowd. So I was doing nothing but supporting and not distracting. And then at the end, that communal experience of being on stage with your brothers playing music where there were no mistakes and it was just this you know, this really wonderful presentation of that musical idea, it's so much better than being on the edge of making mistakes or making mistakes for your own egocentric uh, like, point of view. Yeah, just like trying, trying to be good, trying to be clever. And there's, you know, it's spiritual, um, I don't know if it's a law, but definitely a spiritual rule to live by, which is, you know, minimal effort for maximum benefit. Yeah. <laughs> I read something about it this morning because I'm, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm writing the magazine for the Belgian Waffle Ride. We do the recap magazine. And th- there's this dichotomy, but I was literally getting lost in the idea of a gunfighter and a gunfighter, right? Like has, has to very 
efficiently and quickly shoot their opponent. But it's only in the gunfighters that were the best were the ones that were the least distracted, that were the slowest to go about doing it because there was no wasted energy. It was the second nature of being able to take their opponent out as opposed to this frenetic thinking about it, overthinking about it, and, you know, herky-jerky approach. It was the ones that were more methodical and slower. And I use that same thing, that same ideology with BWR when you're dealing with the dirt. It's go slow to go fast, which means this. You're in the haste of chasing down someone in dirt that you're not that comfortable with, but you're still riding with that haste. And in that haste makes the waste because you wipe out. Had you just gone a half a mile an hour slower or a mile an hour slower and negotiated that turn, you'd be further down the road, you'd be on your way to catching them, but no, you got caught up in your silliness and you didn't go slow to go fast. And that's, you know, we can find lots of other applications mm -hmm. of that Absolutely. in life, including mm -hmm. our own happiness. Why rush there? Because th there is not the happiness. The here and between here and there is the happiness. So don't be in a rush to get there. You know, I catch myself doing that. Like, like I meet, meet people like you guys, like I serendipitously did at the coffee shop. <laughs> Normally I would have been in a hurry to drink my coffee and go. And then all of a sudden you were really inviting and you pulled me in. We had a nice little chit chat. And in those moments, I remind myself, I have nowhere to be but right here. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm late for something, I have nowhere to be but right here. And we need to remind ourselves of that in everything that we do. And when we do, we're going to slow down and have a more enriched and fulfilling life with stuff that matters, not rushing off to some arbitrary thing that we've made in our mind that we have to be there. And sure, maybe someone's waiting, but you can text them and say, hey, I met some really cool people. I'm going to be 15 minutes late. I think that's all. I think that's, 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 I think that's perfect, perfect place to wrap it all up. All right, cool. That was full circle. Michael, thank you so thank much you. for coming over to the studio, I the recording studio. studio. I feel quite at home. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All Thanks, right. Michael. All right, you guys, Michael Marks, the YTP 58. What did you guys think of this show? I, I absolutely love this guy. I think he's amazing. So psyched to share him with the community. Let us know what you think about it in the blog post comments or on social media. We love hearing from you. And we do our very best to connect back with you guys, each and every one of you, as soon as we possibly can when you reach out. For those of you who want to know more about Michael or you're just drooling over the epic BWR event, check out the show notes in the accompanying blog post on yogitriathlete.com. He's a pretty epic human, and I have to say that we are so blessed to have him in the YT community. Thank you all for tuning in to the show today and for supporting the show. You guys are an amazing tribe. And thank you for answering our asks with iTunes reviews, sharing the pod with your networks. And for those of you who have pledged on Patreon, we are floored by your generosity. Thank you. Please visit yogitriathlete.com and sign up 
for our email list. We send out a weekly email, nothing major, and we'll never spam you, but we just want to keep the tribe tight. You know, we want to keep the lines of communication open. And what this will do is get you the insider info on our new cookbook. We're shooting for an August published date through Amazon, and we want you guys to be the first to know. All right, so that's it for this week. BJ and I will be back next week with our monthly Ask the YT show. So if you have any questions, please send them in to be answered this month or next. Until then, you guys keep getting in the gap. Keep all channels open and remain awake and ready because this world that we are living in right now is in desperate need of more consciousness, more love, and more risk takers who are willing to bet big on themselves to become more of themselves throughout this precious series of moments called life.